Hi everyone, thanks for joining my first podcast. Um, with this podcast, what I'm hoping to do is uh, really uh, shed light on some of the, the current events from a gospel perspective. We in the church oftentimes don't talk about politics because it's a taboo subject. We can talk about sports. Of course, we can talk about religion. It's the church. Uh, we can talk about work and other things, but we avoid politics because it can oftentimes drive a wedge in between us in a single conversation or uh, in different facets of the body. And that's that's really unfortunate because um, we as a Christian ought to have, because we have the mind of Christ in part at least, uh, we ought to have the same mind in the way we view these things. Um, and in that we can be uh, countercultural in a way, um, but really what's happening is we are able to live and be and think and see as, as Christ did all of those things. Um, so it's it's really cool if we can uh, really put ourselves in a position of trying to understand the world the way Christ would have and does understand the world. So that's that's my goal in this uh, podcast. So some of the time I'll talk about geopolitics. I'll talk about, you know, what are the parameters of this thing that happened somewhere in the Middle East? Uh, or what does it um, look like uh, for us to look at the at the Syria, uh, Syria situation um, in which you've got Sunni radicals and you've got uh, Iranian-backed terrorists in the same area, and then you've got ISIS, who is a is a thing unto themselves. Um, all of these different bad parties are going against each other, and yet we have to figure out where our allegiances are. Um, obviously, none of those groups, but then they're infiltrating some of our perceived advocates. Um, and then Russia's involved. So there's so many different complicated situations. How do we look at it um, from a more gospel-centered way? What is um, how can or how is God shedding light on these things, and how can we look at them rightly? So I want to get started today actually not talking about the, the most common thing that everyone seems to be talking about in the media, which is the Trump-Russia collusion story or the Comey obstruction of justice story. Um, but I want to talk about Trump's first foreign trip. Because how you view, view this trip, and it's relatively innocuous subject, right? But how you view this trip, it's unfortunately tied to your partisan allegiances. So um, what, whether you're Republican or Democrat, um, or neither of the two, um, you probably fall somewhere on this liberal versus conservative spectrum. Um, so even if you call yourself a centrist, um, I could probably ask you the question, like, how do you view Trump? What do you think about Trump? And you're not going to get a, a centrist question because Trump has uh, driven a wedge between uh, people. There is not a, um, a um, what, what, how do you say it, a lackluster opinion about Trump. People have opinions and they have strong opinions about him. And so I like to ask that question to see what, how people really feel. But when I ask that question, again, the question is, how do you feel about Trump? There are generally three responses. The, the first uh, coming from the right is, I, I think he's doing great. I wish he would tweet less. <laughs> um, the second uh, coming from the left is, I can't stand him. He's racist, a bigot, uh, xenophobic, and I hope he gets impeached. And so that's from the left. Obviously a very strong opinion. Um, and the last one um, is a bit more complicated. Uh, they'll say something like, he, he's horrible, he's so bad, but Hillary would have been just as bad. Or he's horrible, and Hillary would have been slightly better, but they both were horrible candidates. There's this, there, there's this kind of centristic view where we we had to look at it, and it's kind of the lesser of the two evils over there were both bad. Um, but the, the, the problem, as I'm sure you noticed, is that I, I've asked about Trump, not whether someone is a liberal or conservative. So perhaps had I asked an astute individual um, who knows 
you know, how they think or, or where they fall into that spectrum, perhaps they would have given me a very nuanced answer about why she is environmentally liberal, but fiscally and socially conservative or whatever other answer um, or something different when it comes to foreign policy. Uh, but honestly, how many people have a nuanced view on politics? Uh, not many. How many people are informed enough to even have an opinion worthy of opining? So, so here's what I'm getting at. Generally, Americans don't seem to view politics as complicated. Uh, when a black and white, uh, yes or no, either or perspective on the world is easier, that's what we're going to tend to choose. And there are a number of factors causing this, but I, I would tend to agree with uh, Senator Ben Sass, who has been suggesting in his um, um, his newer book, he actually writes more extensively on this, but um, he suggested that American culture is sinking into tribalism because of an erosion of the social networks upon which individuals could previously rely in order to live their life. So he suggests that this is happening um, for a combination of reasons. Um, he tends to lean on um, the erosion of social capital through the what he calls the exurbanization of, uh, of our culture. Um, I would just say he uses the term exurbanization. I would say suburbanization. It was the rich capital, or it was the capital flight from cities into the suburbs in the 90s, right? Um, um, and the digital age and the industrial age, all these things that really um, lead to an ultra individualism um, that separates uh, individuals from their their social relations or from their communities. So um, when an individual is isolated, uh, they by definition um, are isolated. Um, from things, right? Um, and, and in this context, and specifically what SAS is talking about, is they're isolated from community. Um, but, and he assumes this, but assuming we are communal beings, that absence of community must be filled by something. So what was family, church communities, neighborhoods, um, those things are rapidly being replaced by work, sports, and you guessed it, partisan allegiances. Uh, so this is, of course, tied to the secularization of the country as well. But, hey, there are, there are a ton of reasons for this one phenomenon. The loss of community has forced a tribalism in the sphere of politics. And a fundamental breakdown in the dialectical system uh, that is the U.S. politic, and I say dialectical uh, in the sense that opposing ideas and opinions are meant to be refined and synthesized through the, the workings of our democratic systems of checks and balances, but... Um, and I'll repeat it, the loss of community has forced a tribalism in politics and a fundamental breakdown in the dialectical system of, of U.S. politics. So which party actually understands this? I'd say neither, uh, honestly. I, I think the only person who has called this out is Senator Sass, um, and he's Republican. But that doesn't mean that the Republicans get it any better. Uh, I'll abstain from providing my opinion at this point. Um, but the reality is that our current partisan state has become so toxic that even if one specific party were to get it more than the other, whatever truth that party obtained would be tainted by the party whips or uh, whoever else um, is there for selfish motives and um, wants to get theirs, so to speak. But um, So when party politics is more about preserving your seat than ideals, those with whom we have entrusted power do not do what they believe to be right. Um, but what they believe will get them reelected. Um, politics becomes void of authenticity, uh, but when we vote for ideologues, in contrast to that, 
that the desired authenticity becomes meaningless in the despotism of their ideas. Their endeavors uh, end up being bereft of actual effectiveness. <laughs> um, you'll uh, One example of what I'm talking about there with the ideologue specifically, I think we get that um, when people just try to preserve their seats, there's an inauthenticity there. Uh, but when uh, people are ideologues, um, it, they actually can't get anything done. You'll notice the uh, before the AHCA, the American Healthcare Act that Trump's been pushing, passed. There was a, a period where the quote-unquote Freedom Caucus uh, would not vote for it because it didn't do enough to to rip away um, uh, the the mandates and um, and the laws that existed within the Obama uh, or the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. So uh, because of their idealism, the, the idea that we lose autonomy as individuals because of government-run healthcare, they were unwilling to compromise. Um, and therefore, the bill didn't pass at that point. They eventually changed it and it did pass. But at that point, it didn't pass because they were unwilling to compromise on their ideals. Uh, in contrast to that, of course, those who are inauthentic are much easier to compromise as long as their constituency isn't, um, isn't you know, clinging to their guns, so to speak. Uh, so what, end up what ends up happening, and almost by necessity, um, is compromise. Um, that's why we have a bipartisan system, etc. So our democracy settles for an inauthentic, though more effective, self-preservation model uh, in which politicians pursue the ends their constituencies desire. Um, this makes the tribalism that I've talked about so far a lot worse. Those lacking existential identity rooted in God, church, family, community, or their neighbors, right? Um, they find their God in their party. They take up the mantle of Democrat or of Republican and scream and shout the mantras that are not their own. They're the parties. Their perspective conforms to the image of the world molded by the powerful who have created the party platform. We must accept the whole platform or none of it and accept the opposing one. Uh, that is the way things are playing out more and more. I, I think most of you can probably see that. It, it is getting to the point of craziness. The centrists are sane, but to their parties, or to their not parties, Democrats or Republicans, they, they're lukewarm enough to spit out. And so because people need to fill this void, uh, they feel the need to assimilate. And so what w would be centrists are slowly but surely, or maybe even quick quicker than I think they are, um, they're, they're assimilating to one side or the other and, and falling victim to um, partisan allegiance at some point. And I think Trump has kind of really been the, the, lo the, the, the focal point of that. because And that's why I asked the question initially, how do you view Trump? <laughs> and uh, everyone has an opinion. And depending on their opinion, they fall into one side or the other because politics is no, mo no longer at least as much about liberal conservative. It's about pro-Trump, anti-Trump. Um, and what happens is the anti-Trump people are going to fall into this democratic narrative, which is about liberalism to an extent. Uh, and those who are pro-Trump, or at least anti-liberal or anti-leftist, are going to fall under Trump to an extent and then sink within this Republican category. So anyway, uh, that was a long explanation for um, uh, you know, what I'm talking about is that we find our identities for some reason um, in partisan allegiance oftentimes, and that's creating uh, a big issue. Um, so what do we think about Trump's first foreign trip? 
I finally got back to that question. <laughs> uh, thus far, he's traveled to Saudi Arabia, Israel, and Luxembourg. In Saudi Arabia, he met with King Salman and numerous other leaders of the Arab world. Um, this kind of thing is unprecedented, but it's not getting a ton of coverage. The negative, obviously, is going to be the focus of the news. He showed solidarity with the Sunni side of the Sunni-Shia divide, and they embraced him for it in exchange for a, a firm commitment to make illegal not only government, but individual funding for terrorism. He okayed a $110 billion arms deal with Lockheed Martin, Boeing, and Raytheon, all American companies who will uh, bring in American money and hire American people. Oh, this is positive stuff. Oh, yeah, and neither his wife nor his daughter covered their heads. So he also gave a, a well-received speech on terrorism to a panel of Muslims about the fact that they need to deal with Islamist terrorism. This is bold and unprecedented in a positive way. He then went to Israel, where he further solidified uh, the U.S. relationship with Israel, despite his mistake in revealing of information about an Israeli intelligence source in ISIS. Uh, he also met with the, the Palestinian Authority leader Mahmoud Abbas, uh, which was, at least to me, a sort of olive branch and a departure from the language he had throughout the campaign, which his opponents were so concerned about. He then went to Europe and told NATO to pay their mandatory 2% of GDP, which they aren't doing. So it makes sense that they should do it, right? Um, the leaders in the EU and even Theresa May appear to, to be hesitant about the Trump presidency, which is actually saying a lot, considering they all likely feel the need to butter him up and maintain a solid relationship with the world's only superpower. It'd be a dereliction of duty to proceed otherwise for them. Um, and a side note here, uh, Theresa May actually has a pretty good reason to be upset with Trump. His administration spilled the beans that it was Salman Abedi, or Salman Abedi, sorry, uh, and not an unnamed terrorist who su suicide bombed the, the Ariana Grande concert in Manchester. Uh, it would have been helpful for them to not have that sort of, um, that information revealed, um, which speaks to a completely different and huge problem, which is the leaks in, um, in the Trump administration. A lot of that comes down to him. A lot of it um, probably comes down to the Obama holdovers, uh, which frankly probably need to be replaced. Um, so I again, what do you think of this trip? It doesn't seem too out of the ordinary, does it? It's because it isn't. It was a generally successful foreign trip. Nothing fell apart, nothing went wrong. In fact, if you scour the internet for negative stories on Trump's trip, you'll only find a few things that were actually negative. Uh, first, and most substantively, uh, I think the, you'll see that they've been talking about his cool reception um, in Europe as compared to Obama's warm reception, who I think he was actually there this week. Um, and so the, the news that I've seen has actually been comparing um, Obama's reception where they're all smiling and uh, uh, Trump's reception where they're not really smiling that much. But um, the, the second thing that you'll see um, about his foreign trip um, is that he made a foolish mistake saying that we're negotiating with Germany about trade deals um, when he should know that because Germany is part of the EU, it's an EU member, we actually don't make individual trade deals and talk individually with individual member states of the EU. Um, it's a pretty big mistake. It's kind of a gaffe more than anything, but um, relatively innocuous, I think, in the grand scheme of things, especially considering all the stuff that he's actually said. That's far worse than that. Um, apart from that, th there wasn't much, at least nothing substantive, um, 
Saudi Arabia and Israel, there were actually good narratives for him. Uh, but if you actually looked at social media, if you looked at, um, you know, the mainstream outlets, even Fox News to a, to a point, uh, you'll notice that they're covering uh, relatively insignificant stuff. So um, I pulled out a quote from an MSNBC article written by Steve Bannon, not Steve Bannon, not to be confused, Steve Bannon, if that's pronounced right. Um, but it gives you a hint of, you know, what the media was covering and focusing on. Um, so here it is, quote, yesterday, referring to Thursday, May 25th, was not a successful day for the amateur president. European leaders went out of their way to try to accommodate Trump and his, shall we say, unique qualities, but he managed to alienate many of America's closest allies anyway. There was the cringeworthy shove of Montenegro Prime Minister Dusko Markovic. There was the equally embarrassing handshake with French President Emmanuel Macron. There was the French, uh, sorry, there was the speech in which Trump chose not to explicitly endorse his commitment to Article 5 of the NATO Treaty despite expectations. End quote. I mean, you'll notice that they're talking about him slightly shoving someone aside. They're talking about a handshake that looked awkward with the French pre new French president. Um, and, and then he didn't explicitly endorse a commitment to Article 5. He didn't say he was co wasn't committed. He just didn't endorse commitment to it. Uh, so if you really look at that, it's it's not news, or at least it's it's not significant news. But according to this article, yesterday was not a successful day for the amateur president. Obviously, it's biased, but I mean, honestly, if if that's the stuff that went wrong, it's really not that significant. It's not crazy. Um, but if you heard anything about Trump's foreign trip, um, that's probably what you heard. Unless you were actually trying to stay in the know and have a healthy cache of liberal and conservative news sources, which I think a lot of people don't do. I imagine, however, that that my focus on Trump's trip seems a bit uh, a bit much um, of a highlight, considering that's not what the news media appears to to think is most important. The daily drip of new findings on Trump, Russia, Flynn, Comey, that saga has taken over the news, and the news won't let it go. Uh, and that, despite the fact that there's not really any evidence of collusion, and even Democrats are admitting that at this point. Um, the Trump admin, unfortunately, and most likely in its incompetence, acts as if they're covering up a crime for which there has been no evidence presented since he became president. But all this gets, gets to my main point. Our perception of reality is tainted by our party allegiances because we have used these party allegiances to give definition to our sense of self. Because social capital is rapidly eroding, according to SAS. All right. Our sense of self is contingent upon party loyalty, which by necessity skews our understanding of the way things are. The fact that, the, that party platforms mold and are molded by isolated constituencies compounds this issue. And if the news and other media falls in line with one specific party, that compounds the issue all the more. This means that what the party says is important becomes important to the individual. That importance is a bias. The individual holds that bias, and when that bias is confirmed by an outlet, by additional facts, by a lie, the evidence or believability is less important than the fact that that additional, whatever it is, confirms something that individual sees as a facet of her identity. In fact, confirmation of a bias is an affirmation of her identity. 
Conversely, if what she sees as a facet of her identity is disconfirmed, that disconfirmation is a negation of her identity, and it's less believable as a result. In other words, we believe what we want to believe because our identity comes from the beliefs we hold. A Trump supporter likes positive news about Trump because he or she is a Trump supporter, a never-Trumper. In the truest sense of the development of the term, never lets any positive thing about Trump change his view that Trump is unfit to be president. That perception, that perception of unfitness limits changeability in the individual because of a contingency that person has on his or her never-Trumpness. Describing a Democrat or a liberal is much more complicated. During the 2016 election, Hillary was the de facto leader of the party, given she was the nominee. Sure, Barack Obama could have been considered that too, but that's beside the point. He was a lame duck president. So Hillary didn't really provide a solid argument for her candidacy. I dare say the bulk of her support came from a sizable contingent of people not wanting Trump to be president. She was kind of the, the candidate who wasn't Trump. And, and from the election to now, the Democratic narrative has been more anti-Trump than pro-anything. There were some pro-things, pro-choice, pro-trans, pro-Obamacare, etc., but but none of them outweighed the vitriolic anti-Trumpness originating from the Democratic Party. It's not hard to believe, then, that, that Democrats' sense of selves are made up largely of their anti-Trumpness. Now, remember, there, there are any number of sources of identification I could call out. I could call out Republicans for embracing the Seth Rich story, I could call, which is false, by the way, at least at this point. We have no evidence that anything uh, nefarious happened. I could call out Republicans for being okay with Greg Gianforte, or however you pronounce his last name, the, the Montana uh, uh, House representative. He is now a House representative. Uh, but um, I could call out Republicans for being okay with his being uh, a House representative, despite the fact that he body slammed a reporter the night before the election. But right now I'm talking about Trump and how our party loyalties mold how we view him, despite the reality of him. We don't see clearly because our party narrative disaffirms actuality. So I want to wrap up that segment, um, and I want to repeat that last bit. We, we don't see reality clearly because our party narratives, and I think this can be broadened to include other narratives that we fall into, right? Or other socio-ethical narratives, but we don't see clearly because um, our, our narratives disaffirm actuality, and in this case, our party narrative um, prevents us from being able to adequately, or rightly rather, see Trump. And, and so it's cool because um, if, if you are a Christian, at least it's cool, um, because uh, God illuminates our mind to be able to see rightly, at least in part. And that reality um, helps us to be able to see things for the way they really are. That's really cool. I think it helps us view the Trump presidency in the right perspective as well. Okay, so I'm going to move on to my uh, my second segment. Uh, I, I think uh, my segments are going to be, uh, I guess, uh, there's going to be a variety of segments um, as I get started, as I kind of hone in on what my niche is going to be and how, how each podcast is going to work. But since this is the first one, I'm kind of freeform today. Uh, but the segment two, I want to talk about uh, the optical decay of our court system. When I say optics, what I mean is what we see or the way people perceive our court system um, is, is decaying. It's decaying because people are not going to continue to trust it the way they have historically trusted that powerful institution of our government. 
um, because of the the judicial activism that's that's kind of plagued it for a while, but is very very evident right now um, in the way that they're dealing with Trump's quote unquote travel ban, but really his executive order to prevent um, people from seven countries uh, coming into the country for a limited period of time. So let's talk about the District 4 court ruling, which came out yesterday, Thursday, uh, May 25th. To make it, I mean, it was a, an insanely long uh, court opinion, like 200 and some odd pages. I, I skimmed a lot of it, read through um, some portions of it. But to, to make a really, really long story short, <laughs> to make a really long story short, they found that Trump's executive order is unconstitutional looking enough to maintain that the temporary restraining order because his campaign statements implied intent to do something that his executive order actually does not do. So in other words, the executive order is invalid according to the court because it looks like it does the thing that Trump said he would do in his campaign, that thing which he doesn't do. And that thing, of course, is banning Muslims. But remember, the executive order doesn't ban Muslims. Uh, so the, the the court opinion um, relies upon the, the the plaintiff's complaints of injury. Um, so one example of a uh, complaint of injury is that one plant, plaintiff can't see his wife for 90 days uh, during the uh, the executive order's term, at least, um, because his wife didn't have a renewed visa. Uh, I would just side note. I actually my sister-in-law. Right now, I was waiting on her fiance to receive his visa. She can't see him until he comes um, to the United States, but he doesn't have his visa because the visa is taking, I think at this point, it's taken four months and we have no idea when it's coming. So uh, 90 days is actually pretty insignificant. I um, mean, it sounds like this person's visa was already in process, so it's not unusual at all. Um, but the court's using the plaintiff's complaints of injury. Um, as a justification to maintain the temporary restraining order. Uh, further, the judges assert in their esteemed foreign policy experience that the executive order can't be intended to do what it says it will do, which is keep the country safe, because it wouldn't work. They rely on a, uh, a, a Department of Homeland Security report uh, that suggests that, uh, you know, it, it might actually positively, or not positively, but like uh, adversely impact the amount of terrorist attacks or um, the amount of radicalization that happens because of a, um, a, a negative or at least a policy, a U.S. policy that's negative towards um, Muslims, generally speaking. Um, but they rely on that DHS report um, to say that not only is this unconstitutional, but it also wouldn't work. Um, that's the very definition of judicial a uh, activism. It's pretty pathetic adjudicating, honestly. So uh, to put it more clearly, um, the court roots their argument in an overbroad context, i.e. Trump's campaign remarks, which um, they can't really do because um, and, and they actually reference case um, other court cases um, that they say provides precedent for them to be able to reference or actually use substantively use Trump's campaign remarks um, uh, as as part of this um, this ruling. Um, but they the examples that they use in previous court cases don't really vindicate the, the court's stance. So um, I think I got a little bit complex there, but essentially um, court precedent actually doesn't allow them to use um, Trump's campaign remarks. It would be reading too much into previous court cases um, to say that they are okay using Trump's campaign remarks. Um, so in order to root their opinion 
that this executive order is anti-establishment clause, which establishments the religions, uh, um, 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 kind of the religious uh, religion clause or the freedom of the religion clause. They need to show that um, uh, Trump's campaign remarks fail under their jurisdiction, fall under their jurisdiction, um, that they apply to the context of the EO. Further, even if they were within precedent to rely upon campaign remarks, it doesn't change the fact that Trump's EO does not do what they say is his intent. So it's a bad argument on shaky ground. Even if Trump intended to ban Muslims, and it seems he did for political reasons, I'm not saying he didn't, um, but even if he intended to ban Muslims, the fact that it doesn't ban Muslims kind of nullifies their argument, the court's argument. Uh, even further, uh, because they apply intent for something that is not done to another thing that was done in the EO, they nullify their initial assertions that they are within precedent to insert establishment clause. You can't insert the establishment clause as the foundation for unconstitutionality because Trump talked negatively about Islam or Muslims when those comments don't facially connect to the executive order. So to summarize it, their, their claim to use campaign remarks is invalid because there isn't judicial precedent. Their claim to use establishment clause as the reason for unconstitutionality is invalid because they can't use Trump's campaign remarks. And even if they could, his remarks have nothing to do with the order he put out because it doesn't because that that order doesn't ban Muslims. Finally, they claim it doesn't work because of DHS statement. The D, the the Department of Homeland Security. I'm having a tongue twister moment. Um, they claim it doesn't work because of the Department of Homeland Security statement that suggests immigration bans might actually impact radicalism negatively. Um, but judges don't make policy. Right, their, their their job is to apply the law, not to make the law. Uh, so, so what's important to remember here when when discussing the court rejections of Trump's executive order is that, regardless of our opinion um, as people, right, regardless of our opinion about the order, um, it, it which doesn't really matter at all when it comes to the executive order's legality. Um, in fact, the judge's personal opinions on the executive order don't matter either. Um, judges are supposed to accurately and discreetly apply the law. If you hate the executive order and love those court rulings because you hate the executive order, just imagine if it were a Trumpish judge rejecting a law that Obama or someone else you agreed with signed. Let's take another scenario. Let's imagine um, that this was actually a Muslim ban, a wholesale Muslim ban where no Muslim was allowed into the United States, and all Muslims had to leave within X amount of days. Now, let's also imagine that the Nth Circuit Court is full of racist, xenophobic judges put in by Trump. If they were to apply the Constitution and other laws to this actual ban, they would find it to be unconstitutional. They would reject it. But if they twist and turn the laws and and precedent in such a way that they would vindicate this law in the court, they would deem this law or this executive order legal. How would you feel then? Well, you'd, if you hated the this executive order, if you hated that executive order probably because it's unconstitutional, illegal, um, you'd hate it because it'd be wrong, unjust, illegal, etc. Well, that's that's how a lot of conservatives who are familiar with the law are feeling right now about the judicial, what they call judicial activism that they see, and specifically these court rulings on the executive orders.
um, these judges are rejecting executive orders by twisting laws and precedent. This is wrong. So we need to have the courage to say that it's wrong, even when we hate the law. The active, even when we hate the law, the activist judges are rejecting. It's critical. So um, I'm going to wrap up, but this is my first podcast, and I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I know I had a few tongue twister moments, and I think as I continue on, um, um, we'll we'll have a little bit more fun and maybe bring in some videos and stuff like that. So feel free to comment with ideas as I develop these. I'm still narrowing my focus a bit, but I want to make sure that politics is left to individuals. When as a church community, when as a church community, we can work these things out. We need each other and each other's opinions, even, dare I say, especially in the realm of politics. <laughs>